This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This episode, we are going to focus on one more American document, very much connected to Letter from Birmingham Jail, but really in kind of a very special way. Um, this document is memorized every year by students all across the United States. It's a two-minute 10-sentence speech of only 272 words. In fact, um, it wasn't called a speech at all, but instead it was labeled a few appropriate remarks given at the conclusion of a full day of ceremony dedicating America's first national cemetery. Today it is called the Gettysburg Address, and it was given by the 16th American president, President Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln very unusually accepted the invitation extended to him by a young lawyer by the name of David Wills, who had been given the task with organizing the event. One of the unusual things was that on the day of the speech, although he didn't know it yet, Lincoln had early stages of smallpox and he was sick. His speech wasn't even the highlight of the event. Uh, That honor would go to former governor and uh, renowned orator Edward (laughs) Everett. Uh, It was received by the press with typical reviews. The Democratic press denounced it. The Republican papers praised it, um, as Lincoln was a Republican, and that was to be expected. Some things don't change. (laughs) No. Well, you know, today the Gettysburg Address is engraved inside the Lincoln Memorial uh, on the Mall in Washington, D.C., and the Lincoln Memorial has become the most visited location on the United States Capitol. Over 7 million people from around the world are expected to visit it next year. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and everyone who visits it will read the words spoken on that day. Wow. And the question we want to consider today is why? Uh, Is it because it's such a brilliant example of sophisticated parallelism? It is, by the way. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It contains 10 sentences, but its complex structure organizes and juxtaposes very complicated ideas. 
However, the ideas themselves are in simplified single syllable prose. So for an English teacher, we're quite impressed with that. It's easy to listen to. It's highly understandable. Uh, Christine, as interesting as that is for an English teacher, <laughs> I'm not sure that's the reason. And I would like to add that you have been abusing your students for years, making them all memorize <laughs> this and recite it old school. It's true. All right. Well, how about this? Here's a second idea I'll throw around that it's famous because it's short. And uh, it could be easily printed that day, and it was, on newspapers, and they carry it around the world. And it's something it, that we can make our kids memorize, and it's easy for them, and we've just done it for years. And, and so for that reason alone, it's famous. Well, of <laughs> course, that's true, too. Uh, and in that case, and uh, by that logic, really, it uh, elevates the speech to the level of Shakespeare, even. Uh, many of us were forced to learn, but... But soft, what light through yonder window breaks. <laughs> there you go. From Romeo and Juliet or the lines I've seen you force on students from Julius Caesar. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. <laughs> you know, but, of course, as a historian, I just don't think the literary reasons are enough to account for its enduring and transcendental appeal. No, I, I'm, I know you're right. So we should look at the history, because I know that there are many historical reasons that it's famous. I mean, the, the Battle of Gettysburg was the bloodiest engagement of the entire Civil War, and the statistics speak for themselves. After only three days of fighting, 170,000 casualties, 53,000 soldiers dead on the ground, that kind of death for me is just unimaginable. I guess, and I must admit, the historical reasons I'm overshadow for sure, the parallelism. But of course, that's really only interesting, arguably, to those of us who are American, and that's part of our history. It's significant. But as you suggested, the reasons for reading and thinking about the Gettysburg Address are more than that as well. You mentioned the word transcendental, and this document, although it is an American one, I don't think it belongs only to the American continent. The words are universal. And it's because of the universality of those words that makes this document worthy for our attention, our analysis, even to this day. The Gettysburg Address, even though it's 150 years old, resonates with practicality in regard to today's politics and philosophical discourse. So, Gary, before we address the transcendental qualities, a word we've mentioned three times already, uh, of these two paragraphs, I do think it's important, especially for those of us who don't have a true understanding of the historical context, to drop it in history so we can then, from that point, reach out to see how it speaks beyond history. Uh, for sure. And, of course, I agree completely that it is very much transcendental in its appeal. And I want to suggest that, that from the moment it was uttered, the audience knew immediately that it was important and perhaps even immortal. I mean, there are many myths surrounding the origins of this address. And there's one that says he composed it on a train, on a napkin, and another that he wrote it on an envelope, you know, both totally untrue. Uh, Lincoln likely started writing it not long after the battle ended last previous July to this November that he was given the, the address. Um, there are also stories that uh, no one cared about it at the time or recognized its greatness. You know, that's also not true. On November 19th, 1863, the day Lincoln delivered those words, he got up to speak and began to read his two-minute speech very slowly. However, 
He was interrupted five times by spontaneous applause by most accounts that the number of uh, interruptions is still in dispute. But regardless, he's literally being stopped as people consider each idea and every idea hits home deeply. Well, if that's the case, I don't understand why anyone would suggest that he wasn't good or the speech wasn't well received, although those have been comments. Well, let's put the first blame on Lincoln. I mean, the first reason is because the general believed that when Lincoln finished speaking, in typical Lincoln self-deprecating fashion, he turned to Marshall Lehman, a U.S. Marshal there, and said, Lehman, that speech won't scour. It is a flat failure, and the people are disappointed. That's brutal. <laughs> I know, but it was his own analysis, and if you study Lincoln, you quickly see that self-deprecating comments like that are normal for him. He was always underselling his rhetoric, even though he was extremely skilled at it, uh, to the point that he had famously taken down the more educated and more renowned Stephen Douglas in their famous debates. So you can't go by Lincoln. Uh, instead of going by Lincoln's offhand remark, a better judge would be the opinion of the keynote speaker of the event, and that would be Edward Everett, uh, the man universally considered the undisputed greatest orator of his generation, as we've mentioned before. And Everett had been center stage for the entire day, and he had been given two hours to speak, and he took all two hours. <laughs> but his opinion of Lincoln's appropriate remarks could be summarized by a comment that Everett himself made to Lincoln a little bit later. He said this, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. And yes, Everett speaks, you know, full two hours. <laughs> and I heard that it was really well received at the time. Anyway, clearly uh, uh, Lincoln made an impression on his immediate audience. And let's remember who that audience was. Obviously, there's going to be politicians there. There's dignitaries, journalists. This was, by the way, the first time that the United States or the federal government had ever built a cemetery, so that made it a big deal. But beyond the VIP guests, there were thousands of Union soldiers, relatives of soldiers, regular people who lived in the town of Gettysburg, which was actually a little bustling county seat of 2,000 residents. That seems small today, but there were people there whose friends and family members were literally buried in the dirt before them. It's We were talking 15,000 people that day in attendance. And for them, none of them would have escaped the personal pain of loss represented in that cemetery. For many of us today, it's strange to think, and it is at least for me, that 15,000 people would come out for a cemetery dedication, even one that the president would be at. In fact, the Civil War, the American Civil War in general, is difficult to understand. And one other side note I want to throw in here before we move on. In Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, on the Main Street, one of the most important houses there is called the Shriver House. <laughs> is it any relation? They haven't claimed me, but who knows? It could be. <laughs> well, those events were before the war, and they're not part of the Civil War. And interestingly enough, and this is something, you know, that to think about, it was the South that seceded. It wasn't the North. Uh, Lincoln was in favor of preserving the Union, not splitting it up. 
And although he was himself against slavery, at least at the beginning of the war, he would have been satisfied to just keeping it from expanding. Yeah, he was very much into non-extension, and that was his original message. And uh, he was also in favor of compensated emancipation. His idea was to emancipate the slaves by buying them from slave owners for $400 a person. Uh, But this was something the southern states rejected, as you can imagine. Well, and because Gettysburg, even even in the South, you'd imagine that slavery would feel far away to the residents of Gettysburg, uh, the way that slave labor feels far away for us today. When we don't actually see it, we tend to dismiss it. Uh, They didn't have slaves in Gettysburg. And finally, a fact that I learned when moving to the South, but was interested to understand and I didn't understand until I moved here, is that the South didn't even claim that the Civil War was about slavery at all. Well, true. Uh, You know, there is a lot to be confused about the Civil War in general and the Battle of Gettysburg in particular. So, you know, whether we can get into the states' rights versus slavery, which is the the bigger cause because they are both co-equal. Let's go with the easy stuff, uh, then get to the most complicated after that. Uh, First of all, location. Gettysburg is in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is in the north. If you look on a map, it's between Maryland to the south and New York to the north. It's 82 miles north of Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, by the way, just for a reference, Washington, D.C., which is, of course, is the capital of the north during the war, is basically halfway between Gettysburg and Richmond. And the capital of the south is in Virginia. Gettysburg is a little under a two-hour drive to D.C. and Richmond and a little over two hours, depending on the traffic, really, of course, around D.C., which could be eternal. (laughs) So D.C., by the way, is halfway between Richmond and Gettysburg. It seems kind of out of the way for the South to be invading a town on the other side of D.C. That's true, too. But let's go back to the issue of why they were fighting to begin with. You know, for a long time on both sides of the Atlantic, that was up for debate. And on December 20, 1860, a special convention in South Carolina unanimously voted to secede from the Union. Now, remember, uh, the Gettysburg Address isn't going to be until 1863. But uh, even after 1863, the U.S. will fight for two more years. And not long after that, After South Carolina secedes, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana will leave, and eventually a total of 11 southern states seceded from the United States and formed a confederacy. Uh, If you had asked any southern farm boy fighting on the ground why he was fighting, he would have likely told you that he was fighting for states' rights. And, of course, that was true. Most of the young men fighting in the field were not slaveholders, nor would they ever be. They couldn't aspire to that kind of wealth. But the aristocratic Southern leaders who did own slaves and who controlled all the money and controlled the media and controlled the assets wanted the right to control their way of life. You know, they preached that uh, democracy itself was under siege because of the election of the radical Republican anti-slavery Midwestern uneducated redneck lawyer Abraham Lincoln. And he was vilified uh, in in all the newspapers in the 1860 election. And Lincoln's election is going to mark the first time that a president had been elected without the vote of a single southern state. He was not even allowed on the ballot. 
and it was foreseeable that the South would never again be represented as they had been in the past. They used to dominate huge parts of the American government, uh, but they won't anymore. And after all, there were more northern states now, and that trend was growing. So they knew that their dominance of of the country was at end. And this made Lincoln, of course, a threat to slavery. Yes, uh, but it went beyond that, really, if you can even believe that. Uh, We just can't look at the Civil War from an American perspective. I mean, the entire world was watching this. Most notably, the monarchies across the ocean, and they were watching this outcome very nervously. Uh, And this is kind of where the arrogance of the present really has a difficult time conceptualizing the world 150 years ago. You know, in 1860, uh, there weren't democracies around the world. And in fact, the whole idea of democracy seemed ridiculous and laughable for the most of the rest of the world. And it is true that African-Americans could not vote in America, nor could women. But most American men were given a voice as to their future. And America was the only place that this had happened up to this point. It was an experiment that we began nobody else was doing. You know, Otto von Bismarck, uh, who led the nation of Germany during their reunification days, uh, voiced this general opinion of many leaders on the continent when he said that in his early life, his tendencies were all towards republicanism. But he had discovered when you have governed men for several years that a liberal will be transformed from a republican to a monarchist. Especially Uh, if you're the monarch. That's true. And he, along with most on planet Earth at that time, believed you could not build a great nation or build prosperity without that kind of centralized authority. Uh, Leaders had to be authoritarian to be successful. And many great leaders who had built great kingdoms around the world over the course of human history had proven that that was true. Uh, The generally accepted idea of the inhabitants of our entire planet, you know, to quote Orwell, (laughs) is that some people really are more equal than others. And those uh, who are the most equal are entitled to commensurate wealth and power. And the reason I reference Bismarck and European history is that the European experience of the 1840s really seemed to confirm this. Democratic uprising after uprising faltered and failed. And, you know, of course, most of us are familiar with the French Revolution, which really descended into chaos and in tyranny with Napoleon. That's a predominant example, but it's not the only one. Uh, Spain and Russia had both had democratic uprisings that that failed. And the revolutions of 1848 had seen Republican uprisings all over the continent, but they all failed. And monarchs held the authority. Monarchs knew what was best. The belief was that regular people were not smart enough, not informed enough, not disciplined enough to rule themselves. And average people needed to be told what to do and what to think. And most importantly, they needed to stay in their place. And so the European monarchs were filled with all this schadenfreude, one of my favorite words right there, (laughs) Um, when they watched the uh, redneck, ill-mannered, uncouth, average, undereducated Americans blow up their entire democratic experience With war, not even 100 years after Thomas Jefferson uh, arrogantly pronounced to the European aristocracy this new idea that all men were created equal. And they were going to build a a country on that principle. And, you know, the Spanish ambassador wrote back to Queen Isabella and said, the union is in agony and our mission is not to delay its death. (laughs) 
So that was the attitude of Europe. And the, the very idea that President Lincoln would risk the entire experiment under the banner of equality of, you know, for African-Americans and in the slavery was really absurd to consider. And to watch the uh, shipwreck would be a relief. And so for most of the world, the Southern model of aristocratic control of resources, you know, the authority and rule of those who know better, that was the proven model. And even though most European countries did not support slavery up until the Emancipation Proclamation and the Gettysburg Address, they didn't see the Civil Wars entirely about that. The South was very much an oligarchy that was directly descended from European-style feudalism, and that is why most of the nations of Europe will lend the Confederacy support in the early years. So when we say states' rights, at least at the beginning of the war, they saw it as safe states' rights, which included slavery, but which larger than that. Well, slavery was at the key. At the, it was the groundwork of the states' rights argument, what to do about that. And, you know, uh, by 1863 and really through the rhetoric of the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln shifted the war from being about states' rights primarily. He made the central issue one of human equality. That's an enormous change. And if America was to be a land of liberty, it would be about every man's God-given right to be who he can make himself to be before a just and omniscient God. It made no sense for half of them to own slaves. That was against the whole idea. It's not about states' rights really at all. It's about the people, the people who inhabited the land of liberty. And had this always been Lincoln's personal belief in the equality of every human before God? Well, you know, that's always been the question, um, although I don't know if it's a fair question. Uh, When we think about Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, for example, we think about his personal inconsistency of owning slaves. But I think, and, and I recommend going back and listening to our episode on the Declaration of Independence, that even Jefferson's ideas evolved, and though he never fully realized them in his personal life, he did believe them. If Jefferson and Washington can be called the founding fathers of the American experiment, which they are, Lincoln led the country to make the personal sacrifices to really establish that. Well, in 1861, Lincoln did become the 16th president of the United States. And if we look at his ideas on slavery and equality in the early years— I mean, it's obvious he always hated the idea of people owning people, and he always did believe in economic equality. You know, what we can't see for sure is that he believed in social equality like we understand it today, but he did always hate human bondage, and he believed that African Americans should be allowed to work and have financial freedom to build their own lives, and he believed that for everybody. Uh, you know, he spoke of African Americans as citizens and humans, and but at the same time, as President Lincoln did not believe he had the authority really to simply abolish slavery based on his personal convictions, and it had been protected by the Constitution and by the Supreme Court, and so for Lincoln, it's going to take a constitutional amendment to free the slaves. Which, of course, is exactly what happened. Yes, but by 1863, we can see really through Lincoln's public statements that he was willing to walk back the idea that he couldn't (laughs) single-handedly free the slaves. I mean, he had given African-Americans equality under military law. They had the right to serve the country, and well over 200,000 of them did by the end of the war. And um, The southern states were in rebellion, and because of that, the North 
had the right to seize property as a wartime concession. When there's a declaration of war, the government has those powers. You know, and if slaves were property, he would seize them and free them, and so he did. So he used their own words against them. (laughs) Yes, exactly, and he was a master of that kind of thing. Um, In September of 1862, five days after the Battle of Antietam, and I want to point out, Antietam is the first Union non-loss because the North had been losing everywhere the first two years of war. But in Antietam, it's more of a draw, and, and they don't really lose. But it is the single deadliest day of the Civil War. And Lincoln makes the statement um, as of January 1st, 1863. He said this, All persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are henceforward shall be free. It's called the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, the language was charged, but in reality, it had no authority. It only applied to the states in rebellion, and there wasn't any real way of enforcing it besides the war that they were already waging. But what it did do was signal what was coming. Uh, should the South fail to secede, things would change drastically. And there was political genius in this because the moment the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, the war changes for the Europeans, and they begin withdrawing their support from the South. And then we get to Gettysburg. The Battle of Gettysburg would be in July after that Emancipation Proclamation. So how and why does the Southern Army get all the way to Pennsylvania? True. And what is unique about Gettysburg is that the South had always fought a defensive war. This is the, really the first time they're going to invade Northern Territory. So, you know, General Robert E. Lee, um, who was the most important leader of the South and the leader of the notorious Southern Army, decided time was not on the side of the South. Um, they needed the people in the North to feel the pain of war, and they needed to face the North on Northern soil. And really, also, an election year was coming up. Um, there was already Northern opposition to the war called the Copperhead Movement. Um, Lee believed that a quick strike victory in a Northern state would really fuel that anti-war Copperhead Movement, that anti-Lincoln Movement. Uh, you know, so there was a political piece as well. And The Southern Army had better leadership and their troops were more skilled. The problem was that the North had more of everything. They had more men, more guns, more food, more resources, and the war was going on too long. And um, Lee felt he must bring the war to the homes of the people in the North so that they would demand that Lincoln relinquish. Um, It was a gamble. But he marched his army of 75,000 well-trained, battle-hardened soldiers into Pennsylvania soil. And, you know, General George Meade was Lincoln's choice to lead the Union Army of the Potomac to confront them. And although they didn't really know for sure they would be meeting in Gettysburg, they knew there was going to be a clash. And the Union Army had around 85,000 soldiers. And I would like to point out that in Civil War battles, they didn't make a date. It wasn't like you sent a note that said, meet me at a certain place, <laughs> certain time. These armies usually ended up in major battles when they were trying to intercept each other at different points, and that's what happened at Gettysburg. Well, after three days of fighting, the Confederates have lost 23,000 men, and the Union have lost 28,000. But So that sounds kind of equal until you realize that the Confederate Army is forced to retreat out of Pennsylvania. So in theory, Gettysburg is a Union victory. But in reality, as I see it, who wins when you have that many dead people on the ground? It's a Pyrrhic victory at best. 
Pyrrhic victory is a good word for that, and there was a lot of that in the Civil War. Um, and we have to understand that the losses were felt in this way. I mean, 12 southern states and 18 northern states sent troops to Gettysburg. That's how widely represented the country was. You know, every family at this point in the war had experienced personal loss to some degree. Uh, in fact, just to put the entire Civil War in perspective, more Americans died in the Civil War than in World War One, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, and Afghanistan combined. You know, at the time, there was an estimated 620,000 deaths out of a population of 31 million. You know, modern-day historians, however, looking back at the historical record, claim that number is likely closer to 820,000. In other words, one out of every 10 white American males was dead within those four years. And so standing at that cemetery dedication in November of 1863 looking out at the ones who had survived. Now, here's this man who's mostly responsible for the carnage and not just the carnage of Gettysburg. He's going to be responsible for the carnage that's yet to come. Lincoln wanted to be at that cemetery dedication, and he felt compelled to put in words why. And he had been thinking about what to say for a long time, because how could he ever explain What was worth this much death? For an answer like that, of course, that's why we get to that word transcendental. That's what he was thinking. He had to utter words, but they needed to be familiar words, easily recognizable words. And so he chose to start off with the diction and speech patterns of the commonly read and commonly understood King James Version of the Bible. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Psalms 90.10 in the Bible reads like this, The days of our years are three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four score years. That language is very distinctive. We don't walk around saying stuff like that. Even back then, they didn't. The subtext can be lost on us because most of us have never even opened a King James Version of the Bible. But in 1863, there is no one who hadn't, and this phraseology would have been immediately recognizable. The score, that's Bible talk. The illusion and the subtext is obvious. Our lives are short. They're counted in scores. The life of our country is short too. Four score. It's a human life. But when we came to this country, when our fathers came here, they came here on a biblical principle that every man was created by God. And by virtue of God's creation, we are all of equal value. I'm of value, and therefore so are you. It's about African-American slaves, yes, but it's about all of us. Because if they're not equal, then no one is. There's a lot of subtext by bringing this to the biblical level right off the bat. And let me add this, too. It wasn't just the founding fathers that came to America. I mean, immigration to America during the Civil War years was in full bloom, which is strange if you think about it. One out of every four Union soldiers was a first-generation immigrant. Now, think about that. Thousands came to the United States, they got off the boat, picked up a gun, and fought for a country that they had barely met. So why do that? Why do they leave Europe? 
was it because of that very promise of equality? I mean, I think that's likely. Many came here because of a promise, and it's this promise, the one that Lincoln's talking about. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And you see here, he's addressing the idea of republicanism or democracy in general. Um, They told us it wasn't possible. I mean, is it true that a bunch of undereducated rednecks carving out their own lives on their own terms, uh, on the terms that everyone is truly equal? Is it true that such a group of people can exist and do this? We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. Let me add this, too. Um, If you go to the Gettysburg Cemetery today, you will see there is the official cemetery where all the soldiers are buried. uh, But near it, still in the park, is another cemetery, and it's a regular uh, cemetery. This cemetery at the time of the dedication was called the Citizens' Cemetery. Like most cemeteries, it has beautiful head markers of every shape and size, and some big because the deceased is an important person, some smaller. I mean, we've all seen a cemetery, but if you look across from Citizens' Cemetery to the one Lincoln was dedicating, the military one, you will see that every burial marker is the same. The men that are buried there are not distinguished by class, status, or anything at all. No one is more equal than the other. And the 15,000 there on that inaugural day would have seen this distinction very clearly. They would have understood that those markers represented really that idea for which their loved ones died. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. And of course, those are the most ironic lines of the entire speech. After Lincoln's assassination in April 1865, Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts uh, wrote of the Gettysburg Address. He said this, That speech, uttered at the field of Gettysburg and now sanctified by the martyrdom of its author, is a monumental act. In the modesty of his nature, he said the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. He was mistaken. The world at once noted what he said, and they will never cease to remember it. And, of course, it's at that point in the speech that he changes directions completely in the speech because he's not looking back anymore. It is about honoring the dead, but it's not about just honoring the dead. It's about moving forward. What is this war about? What is worth so much personal loss and carnage? And this is the answer, and he's going to say this. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion. 
that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. So he ends, we must not quit. We must not quit. We must not quit. And you know, interestingly enough, the day that he read that, the emphasis was on the word people. So it read government of the people by the people for the people. And I think that's interesting that he accented that way. And you know, the words under God were not in the manuscript Lincoln used on that day. It wasn't part of the prepared remarks. We know he said under God because it was in the transcripts and in the copies made later, but it was not in the original version of the text. And it was spontaneous, but it was not casually uttered. And, you know, in fact, uh, here at the end, there are other intentional phrases that a biblical churchgoer would have recognized in a day. You know, the idea of a new birth is a New Testament idea from the words of Jesus Christ. You know, the promise that every sinner can have a second chance, a redemptive moment to start again. And the phrases resting place and uh, in vain shall not perish from the earth are all taken from different parts of biblical texts that were recognizable. So why do that? Why really hearken to biblical language? And I think it's because of that last phrase, the one where he repeated the same word three times, three different ways of the people by the people for the people. It is about the dignity and worth of every human, you plus I. It is the shared belief um, of the crowd that day that life and liberty and freedom it was one thing, and it was a gift from God and something the state or no other person, no matter how great or powerful, had the right to take away from another. And, you know, there is something greater uh, than any great man or human institution, and that is a creator God. For the monotheistic audience of that day in that crowd, Lincoln was declaring that it was not by his authority, but it was by virtue of God's authority that they gave their lives. And they had a fighting chance if they would defend it, uh, you know, that their children or neighbors and all the people of this land would indeed be free. And of course, that's the transcendency of the reason that Dr. King got up the day that he gave his I Have a Dream speech a hundred years later, and he started using that same biblical language. And I quote Dr. King here, five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation became as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. And when President Barack Obama got up to give his first inaugural address in 2009, he references Gettysburg, and he ends his speech with these words, and I quote President Obama, Let it be said by our children's children, that when we were tested, we refused to let this journey end, that we did not turn back, nor did we falter. And with eyes fixed on the horizon and God's grace upon us, we carried forth that great gift of freedom and delivered it safely to future generations. And of course, it is not just an American ideal. It is not a Christian one, although that was the exigence of Lincoln's moment. Today, almost half of the countries in the world are democracies of some sort. Today, only a little bit over half of the residents of the United States claim to have a Christian background. 
but the ideal of government of the people, by the people, for the people, resonates in the human heart. The proposition that all men are created equal, as limited as it has been understood at times, is still the heartbeat of many human souls. Oh, Christy, you're starting (laughs) to sound like a preacher now. Oh, if I sound like Lincoln, that would be a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Well, indeed it would be. Thank you all for listening to us discuss this great document, uh, one of the documents that changed the pattern of this nation and the direction of it. Um, If you uh, like our podcast, please give us a five-star rating. Please check us out on our social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, all the usual things. Oh, and Instagram, too. We don't want to forget that. Check out our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Look under the section where we have featured books and poets, and you will find all kinds of great educational materials to use in your classroom. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.